Uh, we're in Matthew uh, 5 this morning, if you want to turn in your Bibles, Matthew 5, 27. I'm preaching today on lust. And it's too late to leave, isn't it? If you get up now, it looks really obvious. <laughs> no, but, um, speaking seriously, um, there's obviously quite a weighty topic, it's obviously quite sensitive, and so... Um, uh, just a warning for parents, I don't think there are any children in the room, but just so parents are aware, there are adult themes in this week's talk. And normally it would be fine for your children to be sitting in, but this is a week where you might not want them to be doing so. So in Matthew 5:27 uh, to 30. Um, we're in a series called Live Like Jesus, How to Thrive in Life. Uh, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're going through Jesus. We're doing preaches on Jesus' preach and uh, what he has said to us as his disciples. That's who he's gathered to him, his disciples. Uh, those uh, of us who have call ourselves Christians have decided to follow Jesus. And the Spirit's been given to us, hasn't it? Ezekiel describes it as us being made new, as being given new hearts with new desires. And then Jesus sends his spirit to empower us to live the life that he calls us to and to live out what are honestly really difficult sayings in the Sermon on the Mount. If you were here last week, just hugely difficult themes. And sometimes people have... The criticism of Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount is just, this is impossible. That's the criticism people often level at him. This is just impossible to live out. And the truth is, it is. It's impossible to live out. With the power of the Spirit, with God, all things are possible. And so uh, the crowds are listening in too. Perhaps you're not Christian here today, you wouldn't call yourself, you're just visiting. And then you're welcome to listen in too. Perhaps you're interested in just what Jesus has to say. Because Jesus in this passage is actually speaking to the crowd as well. They're listening in. Uh, but Jesus' message to the crowd is, believe in me and I'll make you new. And I'll give you my Spirit to help you follow these things. He's not primarily teaching the crowd how to live their life. He's talking to his disciples. And so we're in the middle of this series of um, you have heard it was said, but I say to you type sayings. Jesus has not come to abolish the law. He's already said that. He's come to fulfill it. And he fulfills it by teaching the deep meaning and intention of the law and living out perfectly, living out its full intention and heart, what he was really, what the law was really getting at. And then, as I said, by spirit empowers us to fulfill the heart and intention of the law as his disciples from our heart rather than just merely observing outward actions. And primarily, it's difficult to get away from, but primarily, in this, especially in this part of the passage, Jesus is primarily talking uh, to men. He doesn't address women, particularly in this passage, but there is something, I think, applicable for women too in what he says. Women can be tempted to lust as well, that's important to say, even though there's something particularly that Jesus is saying, particular that he's saying to the men. Um, And we're kind of addressing this issue of sexual sin. And Christians are actually quite fairly well renowned, even now in society, for their perspective on sexuality and what a healthy sexual life looks like. They're quite well known for the restrictions that they place on sexual behaviour. That's something that Christians have always been fairly well renowned for. Are Christians, are we as Christians, making too big a deal of sexual sin? Are we making too big a deal of sexual sin? And I think yes and no. Why do I, why do I think, I think it's both. 
But I think sexual sin is a big deal, and there's three reasons why. Firstly, culturally. Sexual sin is a big deal culturally because we live in a sex-infatuated society. It is everywhere, all the time. I I don't even know if I need to justify that. You just need to watch TV for a little while. You need to look at adverts, listen to conversation. We're a sex-infatuated society. And what can happen as Christians is that we can become desensitized to sex and sexual sin because it becomes normalized in conversation and behavior and culture. And that kind of seeps into the way that we think about it. So that's the first reason, culturally. Second reason is biblically. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about the uniqueness of sexual sin, about it not just being a sin that's outside the body, it's a sin that's against the body. And he describes how some Corinthians had been having sex with temple prostitutes, which was a common thing in Corinth. Everybody did it. It was a fairly normal kind of thing to do in Corinthian society. And he, what Paul describes it as doing is taking Christ, as a member of the body of Christ, taking Christ into that sex act with a prostitute. You don't have to be a great theologian to notice that that's not a good thing. <laughs> That's not a great thing to happen. So biblically, I think, there's reason for thinking that sexual sin is a big deal. And the third reason, practically, sex offers three very powerful things. First, it offers intimacy. Sex between a a man and a woman in, in marriage is the most intimate kind of relationship that God has created. And therefore, it's very powerful. So, intimacy... Second, it offers ecstasy, pleasure. Apparently, the pleasure of an orgasm is only matched by a shot of heroin. It's powerful, just in terms of... And we live in a society that's big on hedonism. Pleasure's a big deal. Being happy, enjoying yourself. And thirdly, it offers beauty. And therefore, sex is a vulnerability for all of us, whatever age we are. I think that's important to say, because often these talks... And especially as a younger man, I've typically talked about this kind of issue to young men. But I think this is an issue regardless of what age you are. And actually, I think it can become more of a problem as you get older because you're less likely to talk about it. Young men are more likely to be accountable about their sexual sin. Older men less so because I think there's more shame attached. Because there's a sense of, well, you've grown up now, you're a mature man. You're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. You should have dealt with this by now. And I think a deep kind of sense of shame can come in around it. So I just want to kind of say that to help guard us against the dismissiveness of the importance of sexual sin whilst also not making more of it than we need to. All right, shall we get into the passage? Here we are. Thanks, Liam. Sorry. Uh, Matthew 5, 27. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Adulteries when wedlock is broken by marital unfaithfulness. But I say to you that everyone, married or single, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. 
So first question to think about, similar to last week, is why is adultery wrong? Why is adultery wrong? Well, first, God is a God of covenant. A covenant is when you make a solemn agreement with somebody based on promises. And that's the kind of relationship that we have with God. He's made a covenant based on promises with us. That's how he joins us as his people to himself. He makes promises. So, for example... Uh, Believe in me and you will have eternal life. Fulfilling those promises to God is a big deal. It's really important. And unfaithfulness is a problem. In fact, that's the story of the Old Testament people of Israel, isn't it? The covenant God has made with them at Sinai and their either faithfulness to him or their unfaithfulness to him and the consequences of being faithful or unfaithful. And we saw that in the book of Ruth when we did that series previously. So faithfulness to a covenant is important. And adultery disregards, dishonours, disrespects the covenant that are made between a man and a woman when they're married, the promises that they make to each other, and before God. The covenant's with God. It's not just with one another. It's with God as they're joined together in marriage. And so adultery breaks that covenant. The second thing, I think... Oh yeah, the other thing to say is often people say marriage is just a piece of paper. Have you heard that? Marriage is just a piece of paper. That's a different kind of marriage to what the Bible talks about when it talks about marriage. That's a contractual relationship. I.e., if you do X, then Y. But if you don't do X, then Z. Whereas Christian marriage and covenant relationship is completely different. It's promise. It's not oh, but if you do this, then X, or Z, or whatever it is. It's just, all I am, I give to you. All I have, I share with you. Yeah, it's just, it's a different kind of arrangement, and Christian marriage isn't, isn't contractual in that sense. Secondly, adultery breaks families. And families are the building block of communities, and the building block of society. So adultery doesn't just have an impact on the married couple. Adultery has an impact on the children, has an impact on the wider family, has an impact on the community, has an impact on the whole of society. And we see that in our own society, don't we? And third, it's against the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. It's just simply disobeying what God has told us to do. So adultery is wrong. Why is lust wrong? It's important to say first that lust, sex drive, uh, sexual desire, sexual longing are all good. They're good. They're not neutral. Sexual desire and longing is a good thing. When God finished creation, what did he say? When he created man and woman, what did he say? It's very good. That's God's declaration over sexual desire. It's very good. It's a great thing. And so that's important to know. Jesus is not being a prude. He's not downing sex. He created it. It's a good thing. And he thinks that because he created it, he knows the best context uh, for it. And so that's important to say. But sin pollutes the good thing, twists it, distorts it in ugly ways. But it was created very good by God. He's for it. So he's not a killjoy. He's not a prude. He just knows how it's best enjoyed and what it was made for. So what's the difference then, if we're thinking about lust, between simply appreciating God-created beauty in somebody and lust? 
Because it's just a human kind of fact that when you look at somebody, you might notice their beauty, isn't it? You look at somebody and go, that person is beautiful. What's the difference between simply appreciating and noticing somebody's beauty and lusting? And that's an important question, isn't it? Let me give an example. Uh, Let's imagine you are going on a lovely holiday to a Greek island and you decide to show me the photos. And my response is something along the lines of this. Wow, that looks beautiful. You're going to enjoy that. That's going to be a great time. I hope you have a fab time. I'm going to be wishing you all the best for your jet skiing and enjoying the beaches. You're going to have a fab time. Chuff for you. That's going to be a wonderful holiday. Have a great time on your Greek island. Versus this response. Oh, that's nice. I've not been to a Greek island before. I'd really like to go to that Greek island. I really want to go to that Greek island. In fact, I'm going to go to that Greek island. I can just imagine being on those beaches. There's a kind of twist to it. Your peace has been robbed. There's envy. There's coveting. All kind of your spirits troubled. There's a why not me too. There's a different kind of response. And last week we looked at anger and the difference between an appropriate momentary feeling of anger and the ongoing resentment and bitterness that can build. And Jesus is using the same present participle here and saying that it's not just the moment of noticing beauty in somebody, it's the ongoing lustful intent. If anyone looks at somebody with lustful intent, it's the ongoing thing. It's moving from noticing the beauty in the moment, which is a God-given thing, to now the second look. It's the lingering moment, the lingering stare, It's things like continually thinking about it, fantasizing about that person. It's a sustained, willful looking. Just to illustrate a story from the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 11, it talks about King David. King David, greatest king Israel ever had. He's described as a man after God's own heart. Probably one of the greatest men in Scripture. It says this in verse 2 in 2 Samuel 11. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. He's just going about his day. Okay. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Not his fault. Yeah? She's bathing on the roof. Maybe that was normal. I don't know. I didn't look into the context of it. It probably is. But she's bathing on the roof and he sees her. The woman was very beautiful. Okay, David... It's a normal thing. He's noticed her beauty. It's not his fault. She's bathing on the roof in full view. His response, Greek island-wise, could be, good for Uriah. No, she's a beautiful woman. And moved on. But the passage goes on and says this. And David sent someone to find out about her. That was the moment of decision. He's noticed her beauty, but he's made a decision. I want to find out about her because I want her. What's his, I want to be mine. He's made a decision of lustful intent. He's going, I'm going to have her. He's coveting, he's envying, and that's his responsibility. And it says, the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I.e., the person is saying to him, this woman is a daughter of someone. 
She's a person. She's the wife of Uriah, who's one of your soldiers. She's not an object. And then David says this, Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And if you know the story of Israel, there's a trajectory going on where Israel is on, it's doing great. This is the height of Israel's kingdom. And from this moment on, you see a steady decline from there on. The consequences of his sin, because he doesn't just commit adultery with her, he also murders Uriah in order to cover it up. The consequences aren't good. So there's a moment of decision between noticing beauty and lustful intent. Lust is doing things like this looking for that page in the newspaper, flicking through the TV channels with intent. It's that noticing that old Facebook friend who posts those kind of pictures that are more revealing. It's knowing which films and scenes uh, have nudity in and searching for them on purpose, knowing that that film might have something in that you can lust about. It's things like Uh, turning around to take another look, clicking on the computer pop-ups, paying her special attention in conversation. It's texting her more often than is usual. And the reason I can list all those examples is because I'm just describing my late teens and the first year of my 20s before I really got a hold of this. This is what it can look like when we let lust take over. Just personally, on a personal note, I naively walked into lust. I didn't really, if I'm honest, uh, not that this excuses my behaviour, but I think it's really important when you're discipling young men and women to alert them to this. Because it can be the kind of topic that's a bit taboo and you don't talk about it, and nobody in my youth group ever did. And you walk into it naively as a young man. And before you know it, you're in all kinds of sin that's just a little bit overwhelming, like Jane was talking about earlier. You kind of need to spring clean. You need to kind of uh, deal with it. And so there was a... It took a huge amount of of my thought life. It uh, kind of dominated my thoughts. It affected my relationships with women. Until I was about... I don't know. I was about 20 or 21. I can't quite remember when it was. But I was on a mobilised weekend for 18 to the 30s. And Mike Betts, who was one of the elders at LCC and one of the apostles in Relation Mission, was there speaking about lust. And in that talk, I remember feeling a deep sense of conviction about the sin in my thought life and actually in the relationships I'd had with women as well, which at that point had stopped. But nevertheless, I felt a deep sense of conviction that I never felt uh, before. And so repented received God's forgiveness, and then battled on. It was a real turning point. And I think, like Jane was prophesying earlier, perhaps there's some of us here for whom we've let our thought life snowball and has got out of control. And perhaps we just need that moment to stop, be reminded of how grievous it can be, and hear Jesus' words here, and have, as it were, I think Jane used the phrase, a spring clean, because the little things can add up. You've just parked it and thought it not a big deal for a while. And what Jesus is saying here this morning is just going to wake you up to what's going on. Now you might be thinking, come on James, what man doesn't lust? But I wouldn't commit adultery though. And Jesus in this passage says, you already are. You already are committing adultery in your heart. Jesus is calling us as men to be responsible for what we do with our eyes. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out, gouge it out, 
and throw it away. He's calling us to take responsibility for the gateway to our hearts, which is often our eyes. Now, there is something particularly about what goes in through your eyes as a man. Why is it such a difficulty? Well, it says this in Proverbs 27, verse 20. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. That's what scripture says about the eyes of man. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. And so the idea that it's just one more look, one more porn fix, one more fantasy kind of played out in my mind, one more light with her, one it will never satisfy. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. Why is it so difficult for men, this issue, then? Why is it so difficult? Three reasons why Jesus says, um, sorry, that's the reason why it's so difficult and never satisfied are a man's eyes. But why is Jesus saying it's wrong? I think there's three reasons Jesus is teaching this. And the first is uh, this. Jesus is protecting women. And Jesus is the true feminist in this sense. Lust makes a woman an object She's no longer somebody made in the image of God. And just remembering last week how important the issue of being made in the likeness of God, being a physical representation of God in the world, that's kind of removed from her. And she's now just become an object for someone's fulfillment and satisfaction. No longer a person representing what God is like, but just an object to be used. Helps us to enjoy ourselves, kindling for the fire of our desires. Often you hear people say, though, I hear young men just saying, uh, but it's not doing uh, anybody any harm. Because that's, those are the rules in our society, aren't they? If somebody's consent, they don't need to because I'm not touching them. It's just going on in my head. And it's not harming anybody because it's just going on in my head. It might be harming me, but it doesn't harm anybody else. But the reality is that unchecked and undisciplined lust in our society is wreaking havoc. And it's really simple to see that, isn't it? If people are using pornography, then it provides the demand for the significantly large sex trafficking industry, which is huge in our society. I looked up some stats. 50 million people are in modern slavery. I know that's not all to do with sex, but a large portion of it is. And 99% of victims in the commercial sex industry are women. People, Women are being enslaved because mostly men are using pornography. It's wreaking havoc in society, and it's globally, not just in our country. You think about the Me Too movement, which writes outrage and injustice against the way that men have been treating women in society. It reveals the impact that unchecked lust has on people in society. So the idea that it's not harming anybody just because it goes on in my mind is just not true. Because unchecked, it leads to actions which are causing real damage in society and are hurting women who are vulnerable. So I think Jesus is saying it because he's protecting women. Second, I think he's protecting marriages. Just like anger led to murder for Cain, David's lust led to adultery and then murder. I think it's naive of us as men to think that we're any better than King David, the man after God's own heart. I think we're all vulnerable to this. We're all vulnerable to it. And often the only thing that's missing is the lack of opportunity. And you might even remember times in your heart where you got to a point to think, if I just had the opportunity in that season of my life, I'd have been in real trouble and made a wreck of things. Just to use the Cain story, the devil is crouching at the door like a beast waiting to devour people. 
And it's on this issue as well. He's, he's at the door, crouching, waiting to devour people and get them into trouble. He's protecting marriages, stopping them from being wrecked. And thirdly, he's protecting us, talking about men. Lust can be addictive, and therefore it can enslave you. And you no longer have master over it, it is mastering you. Unchecked and undisciplined lust can enslave us because our eyes are never satisfied, like the proverb says, and we're always looking for the next fix, as it were. And therefore, men have wrecked their marriages, they've wrecked their relationships with their children, they've often wrecked their careers and their futures, all because of this. And so I think that's why Jesus is saying lust is wrong. I think he's protecting women, he's protecting marriages, he's protecting us. But what about for women? What are the implications of what Jesus is saying? Obviously, I have limited experience in this field as a man of what it's like for a woman. But from research that I might have done, <laughs> which is limited, so you take, take this as, as you see it. Um, lust for women is less about the eyes, although still a factor, more of a holistic deal, what the atmosphere is like, the visuals too, but all the senses, the words that are said, the promises that are made, the gifts that are given, the sustained attentiveness of a man that draws you in. So if you're a woman here today, it's worth thinking through what does lustful intent look like for you and are you entertaining it? Are you entertaining the extra attentiveness that you get from another man that you probably shouldn't be enjoying so much or whatever it looks like? But given this is an area of battle for men, how should women help them? I don't know if you've heard of uh, Slut Walk. It's a, well, let me read from Wikipedia, which is the fountain of all accurate information. Uh, slut marches or slut walks. Slut walk is a transnational movement calling for an end to rape culture, including victim blaming and slut shaming of sexual assault victims. Participants protest against explaining or excusing rape by referring to any aspect of a woman's appearance. The protest takes the form of a march, mainly by young women, where some dressing clothes considered to be slutty. And it started following the claim by some police officers in Canada that women should avoid dressing in particular ways because it provokes sexual assault. So what can we agree with in this and what can we disagree with? What can we associate with and what, can we, what do we need to disassociate with? Well, firstly, what can we associate with? Rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment and all of that is absolutely the male perpetrator's fault and responsibility, isn't it? It's important to say, sexual assault, harassment and rape is the man's fault, the male perpetrator's fault. He is responsible for his actions before God and rightly before the law too. We can also associate with a sense of injustice and outrage at the way that women are being treated in society. We can associate with that, we can agree with that. And against um, the injustice of the suggestion that women have themselves to blame as victims of rape, sexual assault and harassment. It's not their fault. Yeah? It's not their fault. It's an outrageous claim that a woman is to blame when she's a victim of such a thing. We can agree with that. What can we disagree with and disassociate with? 
slut walking or marching essentially says, I have a right and a freedom to dress how I like, which is true. Women do have a freedom and a right to dress how they like. Why do we disassociate with this then? How does the Bible say that we're to use our rights and freedoms? In that passage I referred to earlier, 1 Corinthians 6, it talks about sexual sin. Paul says this, I have the right to do anything, you say. That's something that the Corinthians had quoted. We have a right to do anything. Or everything is lawful. And they'd quoted it. And he says back to them, I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is helpful. But not everything is helpful. And so for Christian women, like all women, they have a right and a freedom to dress how they want, but not everything is helpful. And men are responsible for what they do with their eyes. They're responsible for their own lusting and their actions. For godly women, thinking about what's helpful to their male brothers in Christ and other men, use their freedom to be helpful as their brothers look to follow Jesus faithfully in this. So how do we deal with lust? Uh, Verse 29 to 30, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus is saying, take drastic action. Some people in history, Christians, have taken this literally. You can read about examples of people gouging their eyes out and throwing them away. I don't think Jesus is saying that. Actually, Oregon, who's quite a famous early father of the church, castrated himself. (laughs) It's really important not to misinterpret scripture. Really important. I think what Jesus is saying is not rip your right eye out. The problem being is that your left eye is still functional. And if you're a man, you'll know that you have a bank of images, even if you were to go blind, that you could call on at any moment if you wanted to lust. I don't think Jesus is saying that. But what he is, he's talking about something deeper. One writer says this, Jesus doesn't advise cautious, gradual action. He counsels surgery and immediately. He doesn't advise plasters. He commands amputations. He's saying take urgent, immediate, drastic action. So when I uh, I was telling you about that personal story of when I felt convicted of this, the response was not just to say a prayer, which is what we did in the meeting, but was to deal with some of the things that were a temptation to me all the time and cut them out. And uh, a couple of years later, when I felt tempted because I had a laptop for my own personal use, which was given to me by my housemate, he just happened to have a spare one. He said, here you go. Until that point, I'd done all my work at the university in the library. No problem there. Um, And he gave me this personal laptop. And it suddenly became a temptation. And so I smashed it on the front, outside the front of our house. And he came home as I was doing it. (laughs) But it's fine, because I was going to have to tell him anyway. And I just told him why I was doing it. I said, this just isn't being very helpful to me. He'd given it to me secondhand. It was, you know, it wasn't the best laptop in the world. Um, But Jesus is saying, take drastic action. Do something immediately. Are you saying cut out, throw away? Maybe it's a streaming service that you've got that's not helpful. Maybe it's an app that you need to delete or a channel that's on your available channels that you just need to delete or get rid of or put a code to. Sometimes just the moment where you've got to put a code in for something reminds you, I don't really want to watch that. Maybe it's stop reading a particular novel, remove a friend from Facebook or your social media. 
Maybe it's to stop, cut out, spending one-to-one time with a particular person because it's a temptation and something's developing in you. Or maybe it's stopping paying somebody so much attention individually because it's inappropriate. You may need to cut out a habit, an attitude or an activity that provides or provokes that kind of temptation. So one thing to go away and think about is asking yourself the question, is there anything you need to cut out or throw away? What drastic, drastic action do you need to take that's urgent and immediate and is amputation rather than any kind of cautious, gradual change? It's better, Jesus is saying, to amputate than to go to hell. That's what he's saying. Living without something created is better than living for eternity without the creator. That's what he's saying. Living without this temporarily in this short time you're here is much better than living without me for eternity. Cut it out during this temporary life so you can have me for eternal life. Jesus is saying, however the painful the loss of that thing is, because sometimes that's the relationship that means something to you. Somebody you love. Somebody who's important to you. However painful the loss of that thing in your life is, it won't compare to the pain of eternity without him and his goodness. That's his warning. Uh, Secondly, do battle. By grace and the power of the Spirit, this can be done. That's really important to say, isn't it? By grace and by the power of the Spirit, this can be done. One writer said this, and I think this is helpful to hear, because I think it validates the intensity of this uh, for many. He says, the purity called for here is nothing short of heroic. Basically, if you achieve it, you're a hero. That's what he's saying. This had better be a word of Jesus, that is, a divine word with power in it to do what it says, or the cause is hopeless. Or the cause is hopeless. Jesus has provided everything we need by his grace and by the power of the Spirit to fulfill what he's commanding us. When he commands us, he equips us. And he doesn't talk about Jesus' internal life in that sense. But Jesus lived a fully human life. Without being sacrilegious, he grew up as a teenage boy, hormones and all, just like the men in this room did. During his ministry, when he was 30 to 33, he was accompanied by women. But by the Spirit, he lived without sin. And in that, there's a... If Jesus does something by the power of the Spirit, it's possible for us to do it by the power of the Spirit. He's not sending us up the creek without a paddle. He's given us a new heart with the desire to obey him rather than have the easy life. And so he's given his spirit to help us, to empower us, to live out what he's calling us to. The other thing that's important to say about doing battle is it's not all out victory. The victory has been won, but the battle goes on, doesn't it? I've kind of told you a little bit of my personal journey. So in my early 20s, at some point, that kind of broke about 2021. But it wasn't like the battle never happened again. There were skirmishes going on all the time, temptations, times when I had to um, fight through it. It's an ongoing battle. There will be times when you sin again. What do we do? Because that can be quite dispiriting as a man. Sometimes when you're fighting against something like this, if you're in a situation like I was, where it's enslaved you and you're addicted to it, 
it can be quite hard because you feel like you've been convicted of it, repented, received forgiveness, but then you go through ongoing skirmishes and you get quite discouraged, especially when you do sin. And you can end up wallowing in your self-pity and almost punishing yourself for sinning. What do we do in that situation? Well, when we sin again, we repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. And in that moment, instantly, we receive his forgiveness. You don't need to spend time wallowing in it. You just need to receive his forgiveness. Remind yourself that it's been removed as far as the east is from the west. God holds it not against you. His smile is over you. He is pleased with you as his son. He says, you're my son, I delight in you, and with you I'm well pleased. And you have to do that over and over again as you battle through it. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The other thing we're battling, if you're a single person, it's tempting to think that marriage will solve the issue. Yeah? It's really tempting when I was a young man to think that. Don't worry, because one day I'll get married and when I get married, that will just solve the issue. And I won't have a problem with lust anymore. Woohoo! And that's not the case. In fact, um, I've heard some men share the experience that it actually becomes harder when you get married. And the reason they say that is because when you're single, the door is just shut to that kind of thing. It's just, you start kind of feel the temptation, moment of decision, shut it down. Because it can't happen. I haven't got any outlet for it. When you get married, there is an outlet for appropriate lust, a very good one. You know, and God's cheering you on in it. Sexual union between a man and a woman in marriage, God's like, woohoo! Yes, created that, it's very good. Go ahead. He's got cheering you on. You read Song of Songs. Sexual delight in a marriage partner is a really wonderful thing. It's made a whole book in scripture. It's a really big deal. God's really for it. And so as a married man, the door's open, but it's more nuanced. Because there's an appropriate context for it and an inappropriate context for it. And therefore, there's a new kind of restraint involved. You can't just shut it down because there's an appropriate way to direct it. And so it can be even a little bit harder. Whether you're single or married, we take responsibility for what happens with our eyes and our thoughts. This can always be a temptation whether we're married, single, young or old. And the final thing I think, Jesus, uh, that would be helpful uh, to us is accountability. Talking this through with at least one other person who has the freedom to ask you, how are you doing in this area of lust? What are you watching? Is there any sin you need to confess? How are you doing with it? That's really important to have friends alongside you, encouraging you in it. And also as married couples... It's really important to take your sexual union together seriously because taking it seriously guards and protects your marriage against this. And so that's really important being open and honest with as a married couple as you talk about your sex life together. All right, I'm coming into land so you can breathe. Jesus says this in the Beatitudes. If the fan want to come up, that would be good. We'll respond in worship in a moment. Jesus says this in the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, because they will see God. I think what Jesus is saying is, there's no point in lustfully enjoying beauty in the here and now, 
and being blind to God's eternal beauty forever. Jesus says we thrive as human beings when our hearts are pure, when we're captivated by the beauty of God. When we're captivated by God's beauty and not the beauty of created things, then that's when we thrive. And that's actually when our relationship with beautiful created things flourishes as well. Because if you think about it, I haven't actually put this in my notes, if you think about it, if you make something more of created beautiful things, the relationship you have with your spouse, for example, or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and you make it more than it is, and you replace what should only be reserved for God, the relationship's all wrong, isn't it? And this will not satisfy what only God can satisfy in your heart. It says that in Romans 1, 24-25. Therefore God gave them, humanity, over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. They exchanged, verse 25, the truth about God for a lie. Worshipped and served created things. Enjoyed lust in created things rather than enjoying the beauty of God. So they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Allowing our hearts to be captivated by the creator who is worthy of our praise rather than created beauty will keep us pure in heart and enable us, as Jesus promises, to see God rather than our eyes be full of what he's created. So, do we want to thrive in life and see God? Yeah. Let's do battle with lust. It's really important. Shall we still ourselves before God and we'll just come to him before we worship? I think the temptation for many of us will be to feel a sense of shame um, about this. And the Lord doesn't, Jesus by saying this isn't trying to shame us. He wants to free us. So perhaps if you, I'm not going to get anybody to stand or you don't want to do anything physically, so breathe a sigh of relief. But if you're just um, in your own heart and in your own mind, you know that God is speaking to you about this today. Why don't you just do business with him now? When we come to the Lord and we ask for forgiveness, he's faithful and just to forgive us all our sins, regardless of how shameful or uh, degrading, dishonouring and ugly they are. He forgives us all our sins. They're removed as far as east is from the west. Your Father God does not see you primarily as somebody who has those kinds of thoughts and is sinning in that way. He primarily sees you as his son. He delights in you. His pleasure is over you. When he sees you in Christ, his wide smile is over you. Just receive the forgiveness of God. Father God, we just pray for all those of us who are battling this kind of temptation at the moment. Perhaps some of us just need, just now have just confessed our sin to you. Thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And thank you, Lord Jesus, you have not left us without any help 
to follow through on these tough commands of yours. But you've sent your spirit to empower us. Thank you, you've given us new hearts with new desires to obey what you're teaching here. And thank you that you sent your spirit to help us. We just pray for those of us who have decisions to make, drastic action to take, somebody to, a friend to find who, who we can be accountable to about this. We pray you send your spirit to help us do it all well so that we protect women in society and in our life, we protect our marriages and we protect ourselves. Thank you for your watchful eye over our life and our hearts. Just pray you come and help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.